Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, folks. I know, I know. Whenever I start an episode with this, it's always going to be a thank you. And I know I laid a bunch on you last week and I think the week before that. But here I am again. And you know what? Thank you. But there's a reason behind the thank you, and not just because you guys are the best. Because without you, the announcement I'm about to make wouldn't have ever happened. If you're a fan of horror like I am, then you know that the word horror and bloody disgusting are synonymous with each other. That's why I'm over the moon to announce that my show has joined the other amazing shows on the Bloody Disgusting Network. And from that, I have been granted the ability to produce more content. So thank you. And I'm so excited to see what this next chapter brings. And since you guys were so good at leaving reviews and sending emails when I asked, why don't you guys head on over to my socials and give me a follow? You can find me on Twitter at haunted underscore a underscore h and on Instagram at haunted American history with underscores between the words. I'm terrible at social media, but it gives me a chance to interact with everybody. And I have no problem having a conversation, saying hello, talking horror and just about anything else. I'm also excited to announce the start of my Patreon. Oh wait, Chris, you mentioned that you had a Patreon in a past episode. Well, I did, and I took it down because I wasn't dedicated enough to it, and I wasn't putting up content regularly, and I felt, you know, I didn't want to shortchange anybody. I think I tried to chew, chew off, bite off a little bit more than I could chew. But it's up again, and uh, that's really the best way to interact with me. I'm going to have a private Discord channel to pop in, do some hangouts, watch some horror movies, and just chit-chat. You'll be able to get early releases of ad-free episodes, as well as shout-outs and uh, some bonus content. 
So that's pretty cool. I'm really excited about it. The links to my socials and the Patreon will be in my uh, show description. I'm also going to be asking for your guys' feedback. Again, through the socials or email. I know the format of my show is, uh, you know, folklore and original stories that that folklore inspires. But I have so many other stories that aren't necessarily folklore-based. Sort of like the Zachary Bain story. I kind of shoehorned that into the folklore about uh, Halloween. So I'm essentially asking your guys' permission. Can I veer off track a little bit and bring you some other spooky tales? Let me know what you think. All right, all right, all right. Let's get on with it. Poltergeists. Poltergeist is some of the most disruptive spirits you'll ever come across. In fact, a poltergeist is a German term for noisy ghost, which is quite an apt translation. There are numerous poltergeist stories in folklore and film that are well known of being some of the most noisiest, most violent ghosts around. And if you're unlucky enough to encounter one, it'll be something you'll remember forever. Although we're really not sure if poltergeists are the same ghosts or whether they're demons or something else completely, one thing is for sure. They're definitely one manifestation you want to steer clear of. Today, we're going to be introduced to Connor and Owen, two brothers whose run-in with a poltergeist is something that changes their lives forever. Now, before I go on with the story, I seem to have found myself about to tell the beginning of another one of my much longer tales. Much like Zachary Bain, this is an abridged version of a much bigger world, but I could also end it here. At the end, you tell me, Chris, this stinks. We want nothing more to do with it. Or you can say, go on. I'm listening. So please, if you will, accompany me on a voyage through imagination. A place that lies just between shadow and light. Where the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein. And this is Haunted American History. What are poltergeists? Well, typically, activity around poltergeists centers around individuals. Which is terrifying. They're usually focused on one person rather than like a family or a house. Although the events usually do affect everybody. To begin with, poltergeist hauntings seem to be very similar to a regular haunting. But what really sets them apart is their violent and aggressive nature. Real poltergeist activity tends to include violence against the individual. A poltergeist have been known to inflict scratches, bites, burns, even strangulation injuries on their victims. Levitation electrical problems, strange smells and noises, all of these things occur. Now, although poltergeist activity, like I said, centers around a person, poltergeists can get stuck in one place. One of the most notorious poltergeist stories is that of Greyfear Cemetery in Edinburgh, Scotland. This real-life poltergeist encounter is all down to Bluity Mackenzie, a man responsible for the death of 18,000 men who were opponents of Charles II, earning him the bloody nickname. One of the first reported encounters of poltergeist activity in the cemetery occurred in 1999, when a man disrupted the coffin of Mackenzie to find shelter. The homeless man ended up in the tomb during a stormy night, and Mackenzie's coffin collapsed. The homeless man quickly bolted, terrifying a man walking a dog through the cemetery, seeing a man fleeing from a tomb covered in dust. Can you imagine? It seems as though that encounter has awoken something in the tomb, because since then, there have been numerous reports of poltergeist activity in the area, and at one stage, the cemetery ended up closing to public visits. A ghost tour was set up so that members of the public could enjoy this poltergeist true story for themselves, 
and since then, more than 170 people have apparently passed out or collapsed during the tour. More than 350 visitors have been attacked, and numerous injuries, including broken bones, have been reported. Now, if that's not a poltergeist, all the staff of that cemetery deserve a huge raise. The Thornton Heath poltergeist is one of those real-life poltergeist stories that will send shivers up your spine when you read about it. It's a little less known than the Enfield case, although it's really just as spooky. In the late 70s, a poltergeist tormented the family for nearly four years, answering the question, do poltergeists exist, very succinctly for the individuals in that house. A clock radio turned on in the middle of the night, kick-starting events, and at Christmas, the tree shook. Ornaments were flung around the room, and their son woke up in the middle of the night to find an old man in his room after hearing footsteps throughout the house. Bangs and crashes were heard, but on many occasions, nothing was disturbed. Eventually, after consulting a medium, it was found that the man to be seen in the bedroom was called Chatterton, who thought of the family living in the house as trespassers. The activity in the house occurred as a way to get the family out. Chatterton's wife was even seen in the house, too. Luckily, though, when the family left the house a few short years later, the poltergeist activity stopped, and nothing has been reported at that house since then. I mean, listen, we've all had crappy roommates. Maybe this Chatterton's getting a bad rap. An infamous true poltergeist story comes out of Jabuticaba, Brazil. A woman only known as Maria was subject to a poltergeist attack back in the early 60s. Rocks and stones were thrown at her on many occasions. And these rocks were a great weight. So unless somebody had a catapult who had it in for Maria, odds are it was supernatural. They also had magnetic properties, which was very strange. Soon, though, the rocks stopped being thrown. He took a break because he started throwing furniture at her instead. Maria was also attacked and viciously slapped, bitten, beaten. She even had needles inserted to her skin by an unseen entity, embedded so deep that it had to be removed by a doctor. The poltergeist tried to suffocate her in her sleep, and her clothing even caught fire. Eventually, Maria went to go see a medium, and she found out that she was subject to these attacks because of her actions in a previous life. It was thought that Maria had been a witch, but a bad witch, and that she was being attacked by a spirit that she had tormented in the previous life. Maria sadly committed suicide at the age of 16 to put an end to this activity. Another favorite of true poltergeist stories is that of the Indianapolis poltergeist. Again, in the 1960s, the three Beck women lived together, including Linda, who was the teenage daughter. There was so much stress and strife in that house, which poltergeists seemed to feed on. The more stress, the more activity. Things started off relatively benign, with a beer mug moving on its own. Soon, an ornament moved and smashed to the ground while all three women were on a different floor of the house, and they decided they'd be better off spending the night elsewhere. When they returned and were running errands in the upstairs of the home, they heard crashes and noises downstairs, only to discover glassware and cookery smashed to the ground. The police and paranormal experts were called, and although the paranormal expert was bruised during his visit to the home, no source could be found for the activity. The women in the house were covered in scratches and bruises. And although Linda's mom was eventually arrested for throwing some stuff around the house, it seems that most of the activity had no explanation. Now, I don't know about you folks, but when I think of a poltergeist, there are two words that automatically jump into my head. They're here. I mean, if you mutter those two words in that inflection... Automatically, everyone knows what you're referring to. And just in case you've been securely living under a rock for the past 40 years, 
I'm talking about the movie Poltergeist. Poltergeist is the original film in the trilogy, directed by Toby Hooper, co-written by Steven Spielberg, and released on June 4th, 1982. The story focuses on the Freeling family, which consists of parents Steve and Diane, teenage daughter Dana, eight-year-old Robbie, and five-year-old Carol Ann, played by breakaway star Heather O'Rourke, who live in Cuesta Verde, a California housing development which comes to be haunted by ghosts. The apparitions, under the control of a demon known as the Beast, communicate through the family's television set and can only be heard by Carol Ann. In my opinion, Poltergeist is one of those movies that doesn't belong in any one category. It checks off too many genre boxes and pulls them off flawlessly. This is old-school Spielberg just showing off. Poltergeist easily sits among my favorite movies of all time, in good company with Ghostbusters, Jaws, and Gremlins. There's a pattern there. What can I say? I like horror comedies. Poltergeist is also famous for not just being an excellent film, but for the curse that hangs over the franchise. Carol Ann Freeling, the young focal point of the series, was played by Heather O'Rourke, only six years old when the first Poltergeist film was released. O'Rourke captivated audiences with with her stark blonde hair and doll-like appearance. She had these big, inquisitive eyes. Sadly, though, she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again, and her symptoms were casually attributed to the flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction. It was later believed that she could have been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. Dominique Dune, who played the older sister Dana, met with an equally tragic and unforeseen fate. In 1982, Dune separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November of that year, he showed up at Dune's house, pleading for her to take him back. When she refused, Sweeney grabbed Dune's neck and choked her until she was unconscious, and left her to die in her Hollywood home's driveway. He was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but was released after three years and seven months. The poltergeist curse rumor and the surrounding deaths were explored in a 2002 episode of E! True Hollywood Story, titled The Curse of Poltergeist. There were also two other cast member deaths, and while unfortunate, were not as unpredictable or mysterious. The evil preacher Kane from Poltergeist 2, who was played by Julian Beck. In 1983, Beck had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on the second installment of the series. The same film was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which had a very slim survival rate. Cast deaths, though, were not the only agents of the cursed proliferation. In another peculiar and creepy legend surrounding the film, Jo Beth Williams, who played mom Diane Freeling in the first two films, while she claimed that writer-producer Spielberg insisted on using actual human skeletons as props to save money. At the time, they were much cheaper than their plastic replicas. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part? is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. 
His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. On July 1st, 1982, at 1.23 a.m., Donna and Mark Shane were finally settling into their living room. They'd just finished unpacking the kitchen and were sitting down to enjoy a glass of wine together. They had just moved into their new apartment located near Fort Wadsworth on Staten Island. Their two boys, Connor, age four, and Owen, who was just shy of two, were fast asleep in their bedroom. This was a great day for the Shane family. Both native New Yorkers, they were your typical blue-collar power couple, with Donna being a third-grade teacher for the New York City Board of Education and Mark being a lineman for Con Edison, the electric company that serviced the New York City's five boroughs. They had spent the entire day moving out of their small one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn to a spacious two-bedroom on Staten Island. The place had an eat-in kitchen and a den. Sure, the boys would have to share a bedroom, but that was fine. They were joined at the hip anyway. And it was only temporary. They only signed a one-year lease. At the end of it, they planned to finally buy a house. By then, Mark would be up at his top rate, and Donna would be tenured. After a few bumps in the road early on in their relationship, things have finally begun to take a turn. They had two beautiful children, and their new place, which was the upstairs part of a cute little two-family house, even had backyard access and was right across the street from Fort Wadsworth, which was part of the Gateway National Park system. Which was great, because they loved to spend time outdoors with the kids. And the views of the ocean and Verrazano Bridge from there were second to none. Seriously, if you've never been, definitely go check it out. The couple was settling in when they heard a noise coming from the children's bedroom that neither one of them could explain. It could best be described as a shallow thud accompanied by a warble. They got up to go check it out and slowly opened the door to their children's bedroom. The room was dark, now only illuminated by the glow of the hallway lights through the slightly open door. They saw their oldest boy Connor in his bed along the back wall, fast asleep. Owen, on the other hand, was standing up facing the closet. Donna told Mark that she would put him back down and walked into the room to attend to their toddler. He noticed his mother finally and his little face lit up. She loved this. This kid reacted like this every time. His parents could walk away from him for five minutes, and when they got back, he would act like he hasn't seen them in years. It was the cutest thing. When she picked the boy up, he pointed over her shoulder in the direction of the closet. The door was slightly ajar. She thought maybe whatever made that noise came from there and woke the boy up. Maybe something fell off one of the shelves and hit a toy or something like that. She slowly walked over to the closet, carefully, so not to wake up her other son. That's all they needed both of their kids up in the middle of the night when she and her husband were in both need of some much-deserved sleep after their long day. She carefully pulled the door open to check and saw nothing out of the ordinary. Maybe the sound came from the apartment downstairs. It was their first night, and they weren't used to the sounds of the place yet. She closed the door and returned Owen to his crib, gave him a kiss, and settled him back in. She returned to Mark, who was waiting back in the kitchen. Before she could open her mouth to her husband, 
they heard a thunderous crash come from the kid's bedroom, followed by both of the boys crying. Donna and Mark both rushed back to the boys' room. Both of the kids were awake. Owen standing on his crib and Connor sitting up in his bed. The closet door was wide open, but nothing else was out of sorts. They spent the next 30 minutes or so settling the boys down. Mark was looking out the windows and checking the other rooms. He even went outside to look for the source of that noise, but couldn't find anything. He was waiting for a knock on the door from the people downstairs, asking, What in God's name were they doing up there? When they finally got the boys to sleep, they decided to call it a night. They made their way to the living room to shut out the lights, and collectively, their hearts jumped into their throats. All the furniture in the living room was flipped over, and every cabinet, drawer, and closet in the house was wide open. July 3rd, 1984. Fort Wadsworth, Staten Island, New York. Over the past two years, strange things were happening in the house that sat at the mouth of the park. But nothing like their first experience. No way. To tell you the truth, if we're speaking candidly, there would be no second night if something like that happened to me. I don't care how cheap the rent is. That first night two years ago, Donna and Mark put the house back together and spent the night on the floor of their boy's bedroom. And after a few nights, things kind of went back to normal. In the weeks that followed the incident, Donna spent a lot of her time at church. She had crucifixes and little bottles of holy water all over the apartment. She even had a priest of her local parish come to bless the place. Not telling him the reason, of course. She told him it was something that she wanted just to feel closer to God. Connor, he wasn't phased at all. He was his normal, curious self. In fact, he never even brought it up. Owen, on the other hand, was strangely attracted to the closet. On occasion, Donna would find him talking into it. When asked who he was talking to, he would simply reply, Smoke Man. He would pronounce smoke, moke. Now, when it comes to things that you probably never want to hear... I'd imagine having one of your children refer to an invisible person who lives in their closet as the smoke man at pretty near the top of the list. Their plans of buying a house a year later came and went, as the way plans often do. They wanted to wait and made sure they were comfortable, that they had enough of a down payment to make their mortgage more reasonable. Personally, after night one, I'd rather live under a bridge, but this isn't about me. It was almost two years to the day when they moved in, when they decided it's time to move out. That afternoon, Mark was outside washing the car, and Connor was outside helping. More than likely, he was just splashing in the water bucket and spraying his dad with the hose. The apartment was silent, and anyone with kids will tell you, that's not a good thing. Owen was playing in his room when Donna heard that warble again, very faintly. She was getting lunch ready for the boys. She stopped what she was doing and stood very still, listening intently. When she heard Owen shriek in pain, she darted from the kitchen to the boys' room to find her son sitting on the floor in front of the open closet holding his arm. She bent to pick him up and saw his forearm blistered with what looked like terrible sunburn. It was striped around his arm and wrist in a pattern that resembled long, thin fingers. Through the boy's painful tears, he just kept saying, Moke man, moke man. They rushed the boy to the hospital where the doctors treated and gave him a prescription for a cream and advised the parents that if they were going to spend long times outdoors in the summer sun, to constantly reapply sunscreen or have the kids wear long, thin clothing to protect their sensitive skin. July 4th. 1990. Eight years after the first incident, and six after the burns, the family find themselves living down the New Jersey coast. Luckily for them, the lease on their apartment was year to year, and they hadn't signed an extension when they decided to get the hell out of that place. When looking for houses, the further south they looked, the better the prices were, and they found a great house near Island Beach State Park, close to the water. Mark commuted for a little bit back to New York until he was able to find an opportunity to join the utility company that served New Jersey. Donna almost immediately found another job teaching at a local school. The boys loved their new place. It was close to the park and the beach. They had a private yard now and their own bedrooms. And the best part? 
there have been zero talks of the smoke man since they got down there. Their town received an influx of people during the summer months. People taking vacations and visiting the beaches. The boys, who were now 12 and 10, loved when their summer friends came down. Over the years, they got friendly with the families who made their town their yearly vacation destination. During the week leading up to July 4th, the neighborhood kids and some of the vacationing children would place and pick up baseball on the town's Little League field. This place took their Little League very seriously. Their field was equipped with bleachers and lights for night games. And since most of the local dads, Mark included, coached and volunteered to maintain the field, they got to use it pretty much whenever they want. It became a local tradition for the kids to play a game at sundown on the 4th of July. Fireworks bursting in the sky overhead, it was something that everybody looked forward to. They would signal the start of the game the way they started all games, with the sound of the victory bell, an old buoy bell that was repurposed and hung high above the field on top of the scoring box that sat behind home plate. The announcer would ring the bell at the start of every game. Yes, I said announcer. I told you, they take their Little League very seriously. For this game, though, one of the kids usually rang it. They rochambeaued for it before they played. The field sat right on the oceanfront, facing away from the water. Deep in the outfield sat a wooded area. There wasn't much of a chance of any balls getting lost in there, though. You'd have to be some hitter to get a ball that deep. The kids every year would tell stories about a mythical boy who absolutely crushed a ball into the woods to win the league championship, and they all swore that this year would be their year to do the same. As the kids were preparing to pick teams, the surrounding streets were being closed off for the neighborhood block parties that took place every 4th of July. People were dragging out lawn furniture and barbecues, setting up tables and games out on the streets. The kids were all on their bikes, heading over to the field. Once dusk approached, most of the parents made their way over as well to watch the game, while some stayed behind to set up fireworks that would light up the night sky. The teams were picked, and the brothers ended up on opposite sides, which was fine for them. They both played center field and wouldn't have to fight with each other on who got to start. The game was underway and going just how you'd expect a baseball game run entirely by children with minimal adult interference. Perfectly. The sun was setting and the adults were getting ready for the fireworks show. The game was reaching the halfway point, and we had a real nail-biter. It was tied up 5-5, and Connor was up to bat with one man on and one out. His last at-bat was a high fly ball straight into his brother's glove, and the other team was taunting him a little bit now. Owen set himself into position, resting his elbows on his knees and punching the inside of his mitt, when he heard something come from the woods behind him. He glanced in the direction that the noise came from, but all he could see was a small trail of smoke flowing out from behind one of the trees. He was now fixated on what was coming from the woods. The skin on his arms and neck, chilling over with goose flesh, and his forearm began to burn. It was hot to the touch. He was entirely facing the woods now when the ping of an aluminum bat making perfect contact with a baseball came from his rear. From the sound of it alone, everyone playing and the handful of people watching knew it was the perfect hit. The hit of myth. A poorly placed fastball right up the middle. The grin on Connor's face was ear to ear, tracking the ball as he made his way toward first base. He watched the ball land, and he saw his brother was standing with his back to everyone. The ball landed to the left of his brother, between him and the woods, took a good hop, and rolled the rest of the way. He slowed up approaching second base, watching his brother. He was walking towards the woods. The left fielder made his way to the ball and fired it to third base, but Connor was jogging out to the outfield now to see what was going on. Owen was making his way into the woods at this point. A few of the other kids noticed this as well and decided that they would take a look and trailed behind Connor. It was hard to see in the woods. The sun was completely down now, and the glow from the lights didn't make it this far. From the street, once you got to a certain point of the outfield, you looked like you just disappeared into a blanket of darkness. 
Owen! Connor shouted to try to get his brother's attention, but his calls weren't answered. He just kept walking into the trees. As the rest of the boys made their way into the mouth of the woods, the sound of fireworks started to go off behind them. Flashes of reds, greens, and blues lit up the night sky and showered the woods with a brief, colorful peek into the ground within. It was during one of these flashes that the other boys caught a glimpse of Owen, his back to them about 20 feet away from where they were standing. Then darkness. Flash of red. Nothing. No one there. Darkness. Flash of green. There he was again. Darkness. Flash of blue. Shadows thrown by the trees around them. There was Owen. But now he wasn't alone. There was a tall, slender figure standing over in front of him now, looming over the boy. Smoke seemed to be rising off of his shape. His eyes were fixated on Owen and darted up toward the rest of the boys. Darkness. Two glowing purple orbs floating in the black of where its eyes would have been. The boys screamed and darted back toward the field, shouting for their parents. There's someone in the woods! Connor, now screaming his brother's name, started making his way through the woods as the space around him exploded with periodic light. Donna and Mark heard the commotion and went to see what was going on. They overheard two boys excitedly telling their parents that there was a man in the woods and he was on fire. Smoke was pouring off of him, and Owen was there with him. Flashes of the Moke Man from years past flashed into their minds and they darted towards the woods. Connor was almost at his brother when this thing grabbed a hold of Owen, and he let out a shout of pain. Hey! Get off my brother! Connor shouted. Behind him, the voices of his parents shouting their names were getting closer. The activity on the street drew the attention of other parents, and word quickly sped of a possible kidnapping. It was a fearful game of frantic telephone. As activity increased out on the street, somebody bumped into a small mortar tube that had just been lit which sent the fireworks out at an angle facing the field instead of straight up into the night sky. Donna and Mark reached the woods and called their son's names. Connor answered, and as the aerial show continued, they used the light to make their way to the boys. Just as they reached Connor, and they saw the figure holding onto their youngest, the stray mortar exploded just above the bell that hung behind home plate. The sound it created was a crashing bang, followed by a warble. At this, the creature that was holding onto Owen let out a shriek that stopped the people on the street in their tracks and forced Donna, Mark, and Connor to grip their hands to their ears, wincing at the sharpness of it. The creature... Clutching Owen seemed to nervously look over its shoulder as the smoke began to pour from a hole in the sky that seemed to tear open from the sound. The boy and the creature seemed to be pulled into it, and as fast as it was there, it was gone, along with their son. From the pages of the Asbury Park Press, August 14th, 1990. A missing Ocean County boy has his neighborhood in an uproar. Ten-year-old Owen Shane went missing from the field of Oceanside Little League on July 4th of this year. Neighbors reported seeing the boy wandering into the woods behind the field to chase a fly ball, and he never returned. The boy's parents, Donna and Mark Shane, have declined comment. Children in the neighborhood have described an unidentified tall, thin man in the woods at the time of the incident. When this reporter questioned local police about a potential kidnapping, they stated that there were no persons of interest at this time and declined further comment. July 4th, 2022. It's been 32 years since Owen's disappearance. After a while, the family started to second-guess what they saw that day in the woods. They no longer refer to it as the boy being taken. They've convinced themselves that their eyes had to be playing tricks on them. It was dark, and the shadows thrown by the exploding fireworks is what they saw. At least that's what Donna and Mark believe. 
Connor knows different. The trajectory of Connor's life changed on that day in 1990. Partly due to his brother's disappearance, partly due to how he coped. Before Owen vanished, he was very much an outdoors kid. Played sports and just always wanted to be outside. He promised his little brother that they would go camping together, and he was sad that he would never be able to keep it. Now he just watched movies and TV. He wanted to escape into another world. Ironically enough, it was the Ghostbusters movies that really opened the boy's eyes. When he learned that Peter Vakeman had PhDs in both psychology and parapsychology, and Egon was a nuclear physicist, if these smart guys could figure out how to find and capture ghosts using these studies, then why couldn't he? He dedicated the rest of his life to school and to the research of the occult. On top of getting degrees in all the things I just mentioned, he also studied musical theory and became a pretty solid guitar player. Not because he loved music, but because of the warble. The sound his mother spoke about before she went into denial, and the sound he heard the night his brother vanished. He strongly felt that with the right knowledge, he could find this creature and emulate the sound that caused that portal, for lack of a better term, to open and for his brother to be pulled into it. He chased reports of paranormal activity all over the country, testing his theories and experimenting with different sounds at all different pitches and frequencies. And by God, he may have just figured it out. During his ghost hunting, he discovered patterns in the hauntings. A lot of them took place around the same areas during the same times of year. There were pockets around his home in New Jersey that all seemed to centralize in the woods behind the field. The area of Fort Wadsworth on Staten Island where his parents had an apartment was another one. If there was a place to punch a hole in the fabric of reality, then these spots would generate better odds. It seemed as if they were already weak. Returning back to his childhood neighborhood on the anniversary of his brother's disappearance was bittersweet. He had great memories from there before the incident. Now the place was a shell of its former self. No longer a touristy spot, now it was a daytime stopover for beachgoers. The ball field was also left in disarray. The township built a new field up the road a bit and left the old one to deteriorate. As Connor made his way through the overgrown outfield, he stopped at the mouth of the woods. Palms becoming slick with perspiration as he held his phone at the sound he created loaded up in one hand and his Bluetooth speaker with the volume turned all the way up in the other. A reading light clipped to his shirt illuminating the space in front of him, waiting for the town's fireworks show to begin on the opposite side of the woods. The sun almost beyond the horizon. The bombs would soon be bursting overhead. Boom. Standing stoically with the speaker raised over his head, he pressed play. The night air is full of light and sound. The warble he created echoing over and over. The sky is now filling with smoke. And now so are the woods in front of him. A flash from the sky lights the woods and he sees motion. A small rip. Pulsing open and closed with the repeating sound. No bigger than an inch. Without his light, he would have missed it completely. The sound he's generating isn't strong enough. Almost lost among all the other noise is a voice, coming from within the tear, fading in and out as it opens and closes. It's his brother's voice, his ten-year-old brother's voice, calling his name, calling for help. He needs more power. He needs to generate a louder pulse. But his work has paid off. He's figured it out. He just needs more power. Something bigger. I found you, Owen, he speaks into the air. 
And by this time next year, I'm coming to get you. Again, I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 